Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Future of Learning podcast. Today we have a special guest and that special guest is Mr. Sam Watts. Hello Sam and how are you? Hello Lloyd, uh, I'm very well. I'm enjoying uh, one of the last few days of uh, the last clutches of summer upon the, the shores of Brighton at the moment. <laughs> well, it's very cold here in the, in the Le Sud-West as we say. Um, so Sam, we're going to talk about scaling VR today before we go into anything like that could you just introduce yourself your relationship with vr and and whatnot sure uh my uh, title is director of immersive technologies and i work for a company here in brighton called make real and uh, we've been specializing in uh, a scale a range of immersive technologies aimed at training simulation learning and development for approximately just over a decade now um, and um, I joined about five years ago to deliver much more of an old-school multi-channel construction site training simulator, and then the Oculus Rift DK1 Kickstarter backer uh, reward arrived. This beautiful uh, black uh, box of cheap technology landed in my lap, and I was allowed to go on a journey of discovery to determine what VR could bring to enterprise and corporates beyond just the mere sort of gaming side yeah cool thank you and um you mentioned some specifics there we'll dive into that and we'll probably take some of the people on the journey with um you know the dk1 chat and um you're quite active on twitter i would say so there's a mix i think between virtual reality and cats um are you uh, a, a healthy mix <laughs> I think. um but yeah you know hashtag cats in vr is uh, or cats of vr uh, is um a, a steady stream of v, VR developers and their cats. <laughs> I love it. So um, for anyone who's listened to the show already, we've had a, I had a podcast with Professor um, Bob Stone, uh, who really, we had the conversation about, you know, does it need to be VR and that type of conversation. And we'll, we'll assume here that most people are in that, in that phase where they're thinking about VR maybe as business as usual. Um, and, and thinking, okay, how do we transfer that proof of concept or or that project that went really well into a scalable model? Um, so, in your mind, then, where would you be at that? Why do you think people should be considering uh, scaling VR? Um, do you think it all when you've seen some organisations scale it, do you think it's been necessary? Are they in the right mindset? I'm waffling. I'll let you just kind of interject here. No, fine. Um... A lot of the corporations we work with and sort of enterprise level, um, they are still at those early stages of scale. Uh, we have a couple of examples that I'll get into who have jumped, um, jumped all in. Um, but, um, when we talk about scale, it's, it's not necessarily just one technology or, or driven by the technology. It's always driven by the solution and the, the technology falls out of the, uh, sort of best fit for meeting those objectives. Um, I think there's always a, um, not so much this year, but the past couple of years when VR was a big buzzword, people were just grabbing the technology because it was new and cool and uh, they had to be seen to be doing it uh, without actually really knowing why. Um, so, you know, we would, um, we're not one of those companies who will just do whatever the, the the client wants um in order to to get money um we you know very much care about the 
potential future of the technology. So um, when people come to us saying, we want something on HoloLens, or we've heard about VR, or uh, we want a mobile AR app, we you know, sort of at least try and workshop with them to get a discovery session out as to why they want it. And if they can't come up with a good objective or pain point, then um, typically we'll, we'll end up passing ways. Uh, they'll come back later once they've actually thought about it. But overall, we're not just going to drive the technology for the sake of driving a technology. Um, but scaling up, um, a lot of it comes down to individual use cases and needs and where the technology is actually going to be deployed and how it's going to be used. Um, and the majority of that comes down to cost and accessibility and, um, unfortunately, corporate IT policies. Um, yeah, excuse me, I'll just bang my coffee there. I do apologize. Um, <laughs> I think it's a good point, uh, a few things there, you know, that whole concept of starting with the why. And just, just out of interest, do you, so it sounds as if you described there, you're really protecting the VR brand because some people are not anti-VR, but maybe anti-people thinking through the, the purpose of actually doing something. Um, do you think other organizations are like that? Um, because sometimes, you know, like everyone, you, you might attend a conference and people are using VR and you just think, why, you know, what, you know, what's the purpose here, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I say, you know, things are changing this year. This year is very much um, the sort of, well, for us, it's a, it's a year of growth and uh, reality and actually working on building those, those years of solid foundations we've been putting in place. Um, but especially in the so-called year of VR in 2016, um, everyone was jumping on the bandwagon and uh, every agency uh, suddenly had a, a 360 video or VR uh, offering and they were pumping out content on mobile VR. Typically, um, they were mis-selling 360 video as, as virtual reality, um, putting out um, fairly uh, low-quality um, poor experiences on Google Cardboard and not really driving the use cases forward. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I always say there are no VR experts. Um, I call myself a specialist. Um, but why, why, why out of interest? Um, purely because although VR is not new, um, there aren't that many people around who worked with it back in sort of the, the, the 80s and 90s who are still involved. Um, and it is being treated to a certain degree as this new, wonderful technology. But it's not. It's been around for decades. It's been very much lower specified, much more expensive, much more inaccessible, especially to enterprise and corporates. NASA, military, etc. have carried on using it uh, over the years. Um, but it wasn't until the low-cost... Uh, 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 Oculus Rift and the DK1 came out that um, uh, it actually became potential for for scale because uh, you were spending £2,000 for a unit rather than £20,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say unit, I mean the headset and the PC and everything else to, to run a, uh, a particular setup. Um, but um, in this uh, sort of current uh, climate of influencers um, and uh, social media marketeers, etc. 
Um, lots of people would be very quick to call themselves a VR expert just to get a, a talk at a show um, and end up repeating either a load of waffle. Um, he says waffling on already. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, there is an element and, you know, I, I'm very careful how I sort of judge this. But, you know, to me, if you call yourself an expert, um, there is an element in my mind that it suggests that you think you know everything um, and you may have stopped paying attention to the sort of continuing transformation of the technology around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are people who are experts. Um, you know, you, thankfully, you know, Jeremy Lanier is still writing books and there's you know wonderful um, sort of stories of the early days, but also... Uh, his own sort of thoughts and fears and concerns about technology and the uses of um, that are, you know, still very, very relevant to today, or even more so. Um, but, yeah, just to label yourself as an expert at this stage, um, if we look at some of the older technologies, some of them are actually more, function-wise, they, they do more more effectively than what we can achieve today. Uh, but it's just the actual quality of the graphics and sort of latencies and resolutions of, of, of the content were much lower and obviously much more expensive. Um, but ultimately, everything is still moving very rapidly. And every week, there's a new announcement about a new piece of hardware or a new software tool, a new way of rendering, uh, a new... Uh, graphics cards that's going to push VR forward with a, um, you know, ray tracing with the NVIDIA RTX, etc. Um, so to be a specialist suggests that you're still embracing, still learning, uh, still looking to improve and still experimenting. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it doesn't have to be VR. That can be anything, right? That's a, a good philosophical mindset to have um, as such. And so you mentioned some of the, if we focus maybe on the, in the phase where some organizations have had successes with VR. So they've gone past that point of, okay, this is the real business challenge and, and need. Um, and there's a success. What, From your perspective, what are some of those bigger successes with VR um, within learning and development? My mind naturally goes straight to health and safety, but are there other areas as well? Um, there's, you know, yeah, health and safety and repetitive um, uh, uh, sort of building up muscle memory, practical uh, tasks certainly is one area where it's very strong. Um, but we're looking more at embodiment and using the power of virtual reality. Um, uh, it, it, it's kind of become an in-running joke within the, the, the VR development community in regards to Chris Milk labeling VR as being a, a empathy machine back in 2014, 2015. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, when people are embodied and have that sense of agency and presence within a virtual environment and you have other avatars present, whether they be representations of real world people or, um, you know, controlled by AI or controlled by actual other humans that you're interacting with, um, there's been, you know, Lots and lots of research shows that it factors in behavioural change within within human beings, um, and when you're able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, um, 
in as you can do in VR, uh, that um, that 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 empathic, that the soft skills element is very useful, um, and you know is a whole different area that people haven't really sort of thought beyond just the obvious sort of maintenance side of things. So we're looking at soft skills training um, and having voice input and uh, machine uh, as machine to speech output AI driving dialogue trees so we're not just creating a straightforward um, traditional sort of logic tree um, uh, of the dialogue path and it's at the first question you've got four options and one's good and one's bad and two are sort of middling and then that then leads to another one and you have to sort of create this complex mm. dialogue tree that's only as ever complex or as deep as the person coding it um, by using sort of neural li- neural lingu- linguistic networks, we can start to build a much more realistic um, dynamic system that is more representative of the real world, as opposed to just training a rat to run through a maze, knowing which corner to go left and right at to get the cheese. <laughs> Lovely analogy. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. I think. Uh... You mentioned muscle memory. I, um, what's the phrase? I used to teach anatomy, uh, neuromuscular junction, making those connections so that's retains in the long-term memory um, is key. Okay, yeah. so th- those areas work then. And Because um, what, I, what I'm thinking, I'm trying to take the user from the journey of VR has been successful in the project and how they would, would then scale it up. So typically, and I know I don't, we don't need end-level um, specifics here, but typically how much would you think a good um, VR experience cost um, today how did that compare to like three years ago how might that then fit with a you know scale scaling model um hang on i've, I've lost my ball of string prop um, <laughs> um well i mean costs um, I was just to say if you if you can't answer that one and uh, it's reduced right how much by well, yeah um we we still push for proof of concepts and prototypes if we're dealing with a corporation for the first time. Um, if they're not entirely sure what the benefits of VR are, then um, we wouldn't drive them to sign off on 250,000 or half a million pounds worth of training without them being able to quantify the KPIs and the ROI and uh, the actual sort of measuring the impacts and effectiveness. Um, because ultimately, going back to the earlier point of not treating it as a fad or a gimmick or wanting to see it fail, because ultimately that just hurts us, um, then if you start off on a massive project like that, um, then and you sort of do it like a traditional style super tanker and you can't change direction uh, uh, throughout development, then you're just setting yourself up to fail because by the end it could be, um, you know, the goalposts have likely moved. Um, because a lot of what we do in terms of the you know, sort of specific content is related to a site or a particular problem at that time. Um, but the other problem we have as well in terms of cost is very much, you know, traditional pancake learning has been around for decades. And um, heads of L&D are very sort of well-trained to understand um, 
purchasing 30 minutes of, of training material or purchasing an hour of training material. Um, and e-learning, traditional e-learning companies are very good at selling um, this sort of jigsaw puzzle of bite-sized pieces mm. that all equate to <laughs> that much that much training at the end. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's sold in a way that, oh, well, we've got this module and that's a couple of grand. We've got that module and that's a couple more grand. And in your head, you're all like, oh, that's actually quite cheap. But they're not looking that they're kind of missing the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle that actually tells them in their head or, you know, realistically on paper is that, oh, well, it still tallies up to about the same amount of money as what a, a, a piece of e-learning training could cost. Um, so how we sell it is, is, is very different. And by working with um, the uh, a sort of proof of concept prototype stage for you know, low double digits, um, you can get a clear measurable business objective um, and some, some systems set up running um, with content that can be um, determines the success and uh, quality of, which then allows you to scale up and build out the full system to deploy across, you know, the wider network. Mm. Good. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a very good answer. Thank you. Um, the not that you need to be judged by me, right? But I, you, you've been judged. So well done. You can have the stamp. <laughs> so um, I would imagine, and I can uh, resonate with the uh, proof of concept examples. Uh, but the picture in my head then would be: you've got proof of concept, and what you probably have not done at this stage is, make, to a degree, engage fully with the IT teams. You know those types mm-hmm. of security networks, and you've been—I don't know—off the grid um, to use a to use a phrase. Yeah. Um, but if it if it did work, um, and you are successful with that proof of concept, and I know, and I'm going to qualify this because so many people will say it doesn't need to be VI, don't you? But well, if it has been proven to work, and you can see the business benefit of um, scaling up, what? What in your mind are some of those key conversations then we need to have internally? Because I'm thinking first of all straight away is IT. You know, you've got to we've got to get past firewalls or whatnot and ensure um, it works. But then also I'm thinking about uh, does it could it be a uh, PSVR headset? You know, could it be um, the OneNote uh, headsets? And what happens if they upgrade? So there's these lots of other questions where um, the the headsets I suppose become like BAU. Um, uh, or like a mobile device upgrade. How did how in your mind would those would that work? Um, so I mean, we we typically spend quite a long time at the sort of initial engagement stage when dealing with um, uh, any partner talking about a new project uh, or scaling up a existing uh, a sort of proof of concept or prototype that's been deployed working with the various departments and getting a key stakeholder from each department on board so that um, there's no surprises for everyone. Everyone's going in with their eyes wide open, A, knowing what to expect from the experience, but also knowing what to expect from the requirements of hardware and everything else. Um, But then when we talk about scale, we talk about um, the range of the immersive technologies that we can deploy across. Um, So... We're not always looking at having to deploy, uh, you know, multiples of uh, a laptop, a VR-ready laptop of a thousand pounds plus, plus all the Oculus Rift or Vive headsets on top. 
just to, just um, to qualify that because normally in a proof of concept you'd have a very powerful computer laptop processing one of the, uh, like a, a, a headset essentially so it can work fully functional uh yeah um or you know in terms of what we call full vr where you're you're fully tracked with your head and your hands within a real world space mapped one-to-one to the virtual space um but um we are you know, generally platform agnostic um, because we build a lot of our content in uh, in, in, in a three D engine called Unity. Um, Unity and Unreal are sort of the two main engines that VR content is built in, um, and Unity itself supports something like forty two plus different platforms uh, out of the box, um, from web to HTML5 to WebGL to Android to iOS to PC, Mac, Linux, um, and then platforms like the different VR headsets. Um, To a degree, it is as easy as selecting a drop-down box for the platform, and it will build in the relevant SDKs, but then uh, obviously we have to... There is elements of design that take each platform nuance uh, uh, into mm-hmm. uh, account. I'm just on, just on that as well. I'm just trying to take people, um, just clarify some of the specifics. So my analogy here would be Unity is like a PowerPoint um, and you can export in your PDF and other versions and stuff like that, depending on how you want to view it. Very simplistic analogy, but does it work for you? <laughs> uh, yeah, just so I'm trying to get the users Unity, to understand. Um, we'll um, let that one slide. <laughs> <laughs> pardon, pardon. Uh, but um, in terms of uh, creating content, you know, we now design with multiple platforms in mind that allow us to deploy different levels uh, uh, yes. of interactivity uh, across those variety of platforms um, from ultimately a single code base, um, which means that um, for yeah, there is some work involved, but it, we're not having to reinvent the wheel every time we, we want to deploy on Gear VR or Oculus Go or Oculus Rift or HTC Vive or, you know, uh, 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 web VR. Um, so we, we, we generally find that, um, training interactions in terms of what the current VR hardware can do, um, we, we keep it as simple as possible. Um, because ultimately you've got such a wide, broad range of potential technical abilities uh, within your learners and end users. Um, we're not designing, uh, well, for friends, we're not designing hardcore games for, for gamers who want the latest, greatest example of virtual reality interactions and virtual buttons and presence and everything else. Um, nine out of uh, eight, out of 10 people are, you know, the first, the, the time they put a headset on are still their first time. Um, so we, we, we design content to be as simple to use and with simple interactions. And we leave the complexity of the simulated environment down to whatever the particular task is that, that, that we're replicating. Um, and, um, I've lost my stream of thought a little bit where I was going with this. But, no, it's, um, it's, um, it, it's, it's all very clear. Um, well, one of the questions I had on 
there's a few as you can clearly see on the uh, google mm. doc but um one of the questions i just prompted to, to ask you was around unity so um if i go back to an elon example because you, you mentioned that, that that now and a lot of l and d uh, folk are in that headspace so let's say you're working on articulate storyline um mm. today there are a lot of teams have someone with basic levels let's just say that it, it, some teams will have people who can do it for in-house some teams won't but normally there's someone with um the, the ability to edit and um make a slightly uh well a few amendments because sometimes you might go external and you have to make one amendment to your health and safety training but it costs you you know 20 grand or something um it's not a long-term long-term model and with that in mind are you are there any teams in learning learning and development or are you familiar with anyone bringing some of those skills in-house not that they can build something in unity but they can don't always have to go external they can just make you know change the sign or change some of the logos in a very basic sense um i think it depends upon who we're working with um and what sort of nature of their their work is um we we have some partners who um they were trying to build something in unity themselves um and came to us for um some just sort of guidance to sort of wrap up the project of how they originally saw it uh but then when we um showed them the sort of what they could do or um when we ended up you know the hurdles that they were were facing um as a a, a relatively sort of junior developer um when we wrapped those up because they were simple for us to fix and then they were like we've well, got this time let's do something else and let's actually explore what else is possible um they then realized that you know uh, we are specialists and it's a lot better place for us to do it rather than them sort of trying to play catch up with a, a decade plus worth of experience. Um, but um, as VR matures, and this is one of the things that's going to drive VR to go mainstream for everyone, is the ease of content creation um, and enabling everyone to become a, 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 a maker Um is is you know rapidly advancing unity itself was designed as a tool to democratize game development um so rather than games being made in this mysterious black box environment where you are purely a consumer of enjoying or not uh the latest and greatest titles that were available to buy on the high street it enabled people to quickly learn and simply learn how to make their own games and make the games that they wanted to make um, that necessarily wouldn't necessarily have been funded or made because and ultimately everything within the entertainment and general business world revolves around profit and ensuring that the you know uh, something that they sell is is, is making money. Um, so that, is that in like VR the Rick's or Weebly? you know, website builder, is that what you're visualizing in your head? Something as basic as that, you can drag and drop elements into a yeah, VR builder in the future. And there's, there's, there's some, you know, there's some early stage um, examples that are available and they, they, they suit education very well. Um, social VR specifically is um, being in a virtual environment with another human being 
um, where the avatar is controlled by that person's movements um, or scanning their their, their, their face for uh, accurate lip sync and um, VoIP and being able to hear and talk to each other. Um, it's a, you know it's it's that's it's always been around. Well, not always been around, but it's been around. You know, Second Life was world, uh, worldly popular. Um, was a was a was a vast virtual environment that was used for training amongst many other things that probably we shouldn't go into in this podcast. Uh, but um, uh, it's it's that next stage where rather than just moving an avatar around with cursor keys, um, you're now moving an avatar around with yourself. And as haptics and everything else come on board, then you'll be able to virtually shake hands and, you know, sort of see, hear, touch um, and feel one another um, to um, have that greater sort of sense of connection. And whether it's learning or meetings or remote working, um, experiences now like um, high fidelity or uh, the Engage platform or VR chat, um, these are all platforms that are striving to allow users to bring their own content in, to create their own rooms and create their own sessions uh, and create their own worlds that multiple users can occupy for whatever reason. What do you, um, I'm going off piste here, but uh, what do you think Facebook's ambitions are? Because they've, I think they've purchased some sporting rights and there's, um, and they've obviously bought out Oculus a while ago. But what, do, you, do you think they've got a, a that long-term plan nailed? Because that surely uh, will increase and normalise social no, reserve. Yeah. Um, I mean, last year at the Oculus Connect event, um, uh, their, their annual event for developers of virtual reality using uh, Oculus Rift or, or, or Oculus Go or future products, um, Mark Zuckerberg was on stage saying it is their goal to have one billion people in VR. Um, I think the sales units are quite far off that at the moment. Uh, but, um, you know, the high fidelity have taken up that mantle. Um, and they are pushing, you know, concurrent users on servers. Um, I think they're up to 250 now, you know, which is still a long way from a billion, but, um, I don't think he meant one billion people all within the same virtual space at the same time. Um, anybody with a little bit of knowledge of how servers work <laughs> will understand that instances and shards exist and there are limits of computational power allowing you to represent um, a fully embodied avatar uh, uh, within a space. Um, so high fidelity, to be, is this, I've just Googled them, this is the kind of social VR experience. It's actually um, one of the founders is one of the original founders of Second World, uh, sorry, Second Life. Um, so they've got a fairly strong pedigree um, behind them. And Second Life? Uh, Second Life was the original virtual environment sort of in the 90s and noughties. Um, that was uh, the sort of very first multi-user, majorly multi-user sort of social space um, uh, on the internet uh, where you had a 3D uh, uh, representation, but you could end up owning parts of it and you could create 
assets within that world and then sell those assets to other people and run businesses and schools and colleges and educations ended up creating spaces there you could go to virtual audi garages and look at the latest cars in uh, 3d yes. and that kind of thing cool thank you sorry i interrupted um um but um well, coincidentally um there's also sansa which is set up by the other ex-founder of second life um so there's two competing products there um but they're they're looking more at social vr as a whole um and part of the the, the use case for that is education but that's just one of many potential use use cases um but if you look at um uh, uh roomy uh, by doghead sims um then that's another platform which is targeting education specifically uh for a a a, a multi-platform platform agnostic sort of training space and you can bring in content from the outside world you can still have your PowerPoint presentations if you so wish uh, uh, in VR. Objectives at the start, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think the point of VR is to not just replicate the real world and a traditional classroom, um, but, you know, engage people by placing people within the actual environment rather than, you know, looking at it on a pancake screen. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And um, so it definitely seems like the, the, uh, the, What's going to happen is there'll be a platform agnostic approach. So maybe that will alleviate some of the um, the pain points and uh, barriers to scalable VR for people if they have that challenge, which is great. Um, you mentioned earlier as well about gamification. So I spoke with a Dr. David Chandros on an episode. He is a cool guy, by the way. He's a crazy guy. He's a really cool guy. Um, I had so much fun chatting to him. He mentioned that in his mind, game gamification principles with VR um, would also be the next thing you mentioned earlier about um, outside of like corporate environments or learning and development teams. Um, it's kind of happening already, but you, I, I kind of see, I kind of feel that place eventually with the simulation simulations within VR are going to get so good that the next place to go and to, to make them even more engaging and to um, make them more real life is maybe to gamify them. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, gamification is a funny one. Um, when I left a, a traditional e-learning company in 2004 to get into the games industry, um, they had released a gamified learning product um, a few years prior um, that failed horribly because nobody knew what gamified learning was. Um, and it was only when I went, came back to, to make real in 2013 and started reattending learning technology show that suddenly everyone was gamified everything and gamification was back on the table and it had taken 10 years to sort of educate um, enterprise and L and D uh, and the, the general sort of space about how um, reward driven learning, etc., cetera, um, could be more engaging. But then it, like like everything, it all quickly became abused, and um, you know we need more than just unlocking a badge uh, uh, to to actually get that reward or, or the, the the reason to, to continue. Um, and um, we you know, 
part of our motto, um, well, we have two mottos. One's borrowed, learn by doing, and the other one is uh, serious fun. And we very much, uh, obviously, some of the content, um, the purposes of the training will always be serious because we're dealing with ensuring that people are trained so that um, fatalities within the workplace are reduced. Um, but with VR, um, with the interactions, um, and because as humans, we are naturally curious and playful beings. Um, as soon as you put someone in a virtual environment, it could be the most serious environment in the world. They're still going to start messing around with objects that they can pick up and mm-hmm. seeing what happens to them. Um, and ultimately, you know, it, it, we have to be very careful because we want to ensure that they are guided down the learning path uh, and not wasting time just mucking about and not actually you know, taking it seriously. Um, but if you can gamify the experience, then um, it's uh, every interaction has a purpose and a meaning and an outcome. And you can make it positive and negative, much like the real world. And it sort of it ingests that level of sort of uh, social behaviour or, or um, sort of results um, or, or implications of your actions, um, much more than um, selecting answer A, B, or C. Um, sort of what sentence would you say in this scenario type setup? Hey, here's Chad. Chad's got a decision yeah. to make. Um, but, um, most of our team comes from a, uh, AAA gaming development, uh, or, or industry backgrounds. Um, AAA doesn't mean anything, but people understand it as being, um, the, the sort of the highest pinnacle of, uh, the games industry sort of development side of things in terms of size of team, budget length of time to develop something and the amount of polish and the amount of PR and marketing behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, indie doesn't mean anything. Indie essentially means you don't have a publisher funding your title or telling you what you can and can't have as your feature set or, or um, uh, sort of release uh, content. Um, but these days, there's blurred lines between the two. Um and indie is anyone from one person in their bedroom making their own game to a team of 20 who've been funded by a publisher who specializes in indie content, uh, but are generally, um, well, they're still a publisher, but they paint themselves as being a lot less harsh than AAA. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately it means that our team, um, with simulation and training, um, from full flight simulators and construction site simulators and gaming, we're perfectly suited for virtual reality development um, because we know the interactions, we know um, the current limitations, but ultimately um, we have that level of polish and care um, of being able to maximise um, what is possible with the budget um, but you know, sort of all those extra little bits of polish that make it a truly outstanding experience and something that you actually remember rather than something that you put on, it doesn't work very well, you feel a bit sick, you think yeah, that yeah. the technology does that by default um, and you know we've lost you forevermore as a potential 
um, sort of virtual reality pioneer of the future. Yeah, I fully agree. It's about the um, the memory. And again, David was saying sometimes, a bit like when we watch horror movies, that sometimes the memories don't have to be good for us to learn. Um, we yeah. can still learn and not enjoy it, which is a key point. So um, with that in mind, then, the, the kind of final mainstream question I've got before we dive into some of the quick fire ones, if you could give anyone listening some advice, if they were going going to speak um, to a supplier or even going to have an internal meeting about scaling VR, what would the one or two key tips be for them to think about, do you think? Um, well, the first one would be have a budget in mind. Um, always approach with a budget um, and keep an open dialogue. Um, we pride ourselves very much on our openness and our honesty in terms of um, what things are going to cost what things that we will likely demonstrate to you as examples of our capabilities have cost in the past um, and what is realistically possible within time, budget um, uh, 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 limitations. Um, we don't have that mechanism of saying a 20-minute experience is going to be 20 grand or mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, like, you know, we can steer people through, but uh, we can't necessarily um, stop people from spending longer than 20 minutes, for example. But, yeah. um, but the main thing is do some research and just go and try out hardware so you understand what it can and can't do. Um, we spend a lot of time educating people the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality and mixed reality. Um, quite often, people come to us saying they want something in VR and after half an hour of discussing um, what it is that they're trying to achieve, um, it's clear that they're actually talking about, and in their heads, they mean AR. Um, and, you know, well, I, I've not seen, you know, uh, VR headsets that use iPads yet, anyway. Um, <laughs> but... Um, days. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, Ultimately, it's just having some clear business objectives in mind, some clear learning objectives, highlighting a, 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 a pain point, um, not leading with the technology, um, uh, avoid straight-up 360 video. Um, if somebody says that's VR, then use that as a red flag um, to potentially not you know, continue talking to them. Um, and uh, cheap isn't always good or is rarely good. Um, so if there's people out there and they're promising you the earth for £5,000 and it will only take two weeks to develop, then uh, I'd be very, very wary in terms of the actual end content that you're going to receive. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, some good practical things to take away there. So quick fire questions, um, and as you're going to do this, I'm just going to take a photo, because when I always do these things, um, these podcasts, I'm always like, I need to take a photo so I can promote it. So just bear with me. I'm going to take a photo and ask a question. So you get about 30 seconds for the response. So what sources or resources are you learning from right now? Uh, resources and resources. I learn by default um, from Kent Five Voices of VR podcast. Um, because Kent Five. Kent by, as in Kent, as in a region of England. I was thinking Clark, but yep, same stuff. Uh, all Clark. Um, 
Uh, bye as in goodbye. Yeah, sorry. Um, um, so Kent 5 podcast and they... Um, Voices of VR podcast. Uh, he has done a phenomenal amount of podcasts. Uh, I think he's over about 500 now uh, with a range of... Um, I shall bundle them all up into the term XR pioneers, where that's a um, small italic X, as in a mathematical similar uh, symbol to represent um, V, A or M. Um uh, across a whole gamut of VR uses, um, very much from the humanistic point of view. Okay, and I'll get the link for that. I'm going to check that out myself. Um, um, and then, um, oh, um, I strongly advocate following the Twitter list of women in VR who uh, I, I curate, um, which is available from my Twitter bio um vr underscore sam mm-hmm. um just because it's it it's a new fledgling medium and it's very important to have a wide range of uh you know, a wide diverse uh, uh equality range of uh creators uh having their their part to play mm-hmm. okay so you, you answered my second question there which was which uh person or person should would be following on social media so thank you so the um final quick fire question if you could change one thing um i'm going to slightly change this so if you could change one thing about your industry what would it be so your industry i would uh, presume gaming um but likewise if you could change one thing about learning and development um what would you change as well um I would like to change the levels of fear around emerging technologies. Um, like I say, um, it takes a long time for ideas to be accepted. Um, and I appreciate measurement and impact and everything else. Um, but there seems to be a particular buzzword every year and everyone focuses on that. Um, whether it be gamification, whether it be chatbots, whether it be AI, um, you know, these are all things which are people go great lengths. Will they, they talk about the the the, the heady possibilities of um, in the future? But it's not really um, addressing the sort of current issues that we have now, um, or actually showing any real world examples where people are actually doing wonderful things with these technologies already um and then ultimately um it would be corporate it procurement policies that mean um a lot of enterprises can't actually buy hardware good enough to run vr um and are set in stone for a number of years and then um you know with a lot of cheaper devices coming on board from non-mainstream manufacturers how they're actually ever going to get into enterprise and education. Um, Maybe I should start consulting for hardware manufacturers and how they can do um, uh, successful procurement vendorship. Okay. And that wasn't for your industry as well, was it? Was is that um, both? Are you... Well, that's in general. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if there's anything from a, like a, with your gamification hat on. Oh, gaming. I don't know if I'm using the right word there, but you get my point. Yeah. Um, 
ultimately we're going to be it, it, it's more down to advances in technology um as the, the the sooner that we can make the technology invisible then the sooner it's going to be less well it's not going to be a barrier um i can put um my grandma has tried oculus dk1 dk2 uh, the engineering sample, uh, the uh, the full retail co- com- uh, consumer unit. Um, she's tried all different stages of Gear VR and Oculus Go and a couple of standalones. Um, but give her a controller and a gamepad, you know, she starts to really struggle with with interactions. Um, the current capabilities of the tracked motion input controllers are still very game paddy because we're still ultimately having to push a button to do something um there are elements of say the oculus touch that has capacitive buttons that makes you think you can do natural gestures because when you point your avatar finger points but it's not scanning where you're pointing or where your finger is it's just registering the fact that Mm -hmm. you're not touching the button therefore uh, the code says therefore you must be pointing um when we have decent hand tracking um, and haptics and a number of other technologies that remove all the cables and the fat, um, then we can go mainstream, then we can scale, and the costs will come down and it'll be a whole lot easier. Thankfully, with the Vive Focus and the Oculus Santa Cruz um, in the not-too-far-distant future, um, we're going to be a number of steps nearer to that uh, situation. Um, but yeah, um, it's still just the education of whittling down the numbers. So, you know, next year it will be seven out of 10 people, uh, once yeah. tried VR. And then, you know, eventually it will be two out of 10. Um, and it will be, our lives will be a lot easier. <laughs> okay. Good I stuff. appreciate that. It was a lot longer than 30 seconds. Nah, that's all good. Um, we're all learning. Um, You've mentioned your Twitter handle at VR underscore Sam. If, is there any, anywhere else that people can get in touch with you um, and yeah, see these wonderful I mean, cats? Um, according to Onaliska, I am the 12th most influential person in VR globally um, in 2017. So <laughs> I, well, I might have on, on the top 10 this year. Um, that's if they're still tracking VR, I don't know. But um, uh, obviously, uh, it's... Uh, if you actually want to find out about learning products that we are creating using a range of immersive technologies rather than cat pictures and random things to do with the technology that I find interesting, uh, there's Make Real VR on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, there's Voices of VR. Um, which is a podcast by Kent Boy that I mentioned. Yes, I've captured that one. I'll put those yeah. in the notes as well. Um, oh, sorry, this is me, isn't it? Yeah. Um, um, I, uh, I, you probably guessed by now that I can waffle and talk about VR for a long time and go off at many tangents. So basically, if you follow the bit.ly link from my Twitter profile, um, I've got four years of articles, quotes, podcasts, etc., that I participated in um, uh, as part of my journey of discovery of the strengths and weaknesses of the technology. Mm, cool. Yeah, I've had a look at those before, and we'll share those out. 
Sam, the um, the pleasure's been mine, and thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>